0: You're listening to Halfway There, episode number 206, J. Kim and Why We Need Real People. This one's perfect for a pandemic. Welcome to Halfway There. This is the show where we have honest conversations with ordinary Christians about today's Christian experience. Of course, I am your host, Eric Nevins. Thank you so much for joining me. If you have not yet had a chance to go out to halfwaytherepodcast.com, the days are certainly interesting. You may not be listening when you're busy doing other things. So go ahead, uh, go to halfwaytherepodcast.com. You can do a couple things there. You can go ahead and jump on the mailing list so that you can get my special updates things i don't always share other places when episodes come out and if you want to you can join patreon to support the show so we can make more of them i would love it to have you on board for that if you do that you get early access to every single episode and uh, at the 25 dollar level you can get a halfway there t-shirt which I wear mine with pride all the time, so I'd love to have you uh, have one as well. Uh, today, I cannot wait to have this conversation. I cannot imagine a more appropriate conversation to have right now than the one we're going to talk about. Uh, our guest, he is a pastor in Silicon Valley, and he's the author of a brand new book called Analog Church, Why We Need Real People, Places and Things in the Digital Age. Uh, I don't think you could have timed this one better. Our guest is Jay Kim. Welcome to the halfway there, Jay.
1: Thanks, Eric. I'm really happy to be on.
0: Yeah. Okay. Well, what did you do to get uh, Providence on your side to get a global pandemic in the middle of a book about Analog Church? (laughs) That's
1: right. This was all my doing. (laughs) It It was a marketing scheme that uh, me and my publisher came up with. Yeah, no, It's uh, this is certainly not what we expected, not just us, but the world, and uh, certainly not what we would have planned out for ourselves. It's been so strange. But uh, like you said, in some strange ways, uh, maybe providential, you know. And uh, it's man, this is like feast or famine, really, in terms of what I'm trying to talk about in the book and the time we're in. Uh, But for me, on a personal level, and as a pastor and a church leader, it's just more deeply affirmed some of the ideas that uh, I'm proposing. While some, at the same time, like you said, so grateful for the technologies that allow us to stay somewhat.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, It's very interesting. I've been saying for a long time, we've never been more well-connected and less well-known, right? And uh, I think what's happening right now is we're able to go, oh, uh, that's a problem, right? Because normally we can just kind of live with it. But now it's like, oh, wait, I need to actually be known and I need to know other people. And I don't have any other way to connect with them except for through technology. So let's use that. Um I've seen churches do that as well, which is really interesting. I have a lot of questions for you about that, so we'll we'll get there. But I want to talk about your story first because this is all about your story because you don't learn things like this uh without having a story, I'm sure. So um we we talked a little bit about about you. Uh, tell us where you are. You said you're a pastor. Tell us a little bit about that right now, where you are right now.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I uh, I live like you said in the Silicon Valley of California, which is uh, coincidentally, the, the hub, the epicenter of the digital age and online technology. So I'm, you know, surrounded by friends and family who are immersed in that world. And I don't just mean using digital technology as we all do, but I mean like immersed in the world of creating it and innovating. Um, you know, most of my family actually works in tech in some mm-hmm. form or fashion. Uh, many of my friends do as well. And uh, so many folks in our church, you know, work in tech and are involved uh, in tech. So I'm surrounded by that. But, um, yeah, it's an interesting juxtaposition. I, uh, I've been in the Silicon Valley basically, basically my, my entire life. I, um, since I was about four or five, uh, this has been home. So I never left, and I've been surrounded by all of this stuff the entire time. Uh, and I serve currently, I, I lead and serve at a church called Vintage Faith, um, which is actually in Santa Cruz, uh, which is about 20 minutes south of, um, like the Silicon Valley in terms of like the, the the center of Silicon Valley. People will often call Santa Cruz Silicon Beach uh, because it's a it's a, an eclectic, sleepy beach town that's uh, about 20 minutes, like I said, about 20 minutes south of of where I live now. And, um, So it's an interesting juxtaposition because they're very, even though they're separated by only, you know, um, 20 miles or so, uh, they're very different, Silicon Valley and Santa Cruz. So um, that's kind of the reality that I live in. I live in that tension or I see the tension between the two. uh, But yeah, you know, as far as like what I do, yeah, I've been helping serve and lead in the local church for about 17 years now. College. I was studying business and sort of a providential experience with the Lord, and yeah, um, drop, dropped out and enrolled in Bible college and seminary.
0: And- <laughs> okay, well, let's hear those stories because I want to. I want to dig into that because I love to hear how God leads other people. So, uh, you grew up in Silicon Valley, it sounds like. So, what? Uh, I'm from Iowa, so I say it's Silicon. Sorry, Sil- Silicon. <laughs> we a- also say Missouri. My grandfather said Missouri his entire life. Um, anyway you grew up there. So you, uh, so what was that like? Were you, uh, was it a Christian family or what was, what was the atmosphere there?
1: Yeah, I was actually born in, um, uh, South Korea in a city called Incheon, which was a small little city when I was born there in in 1979, but it's a pretty big uh, metropolitan area now, but, um, I was born there. So I'm told, I don't remember, (laughs) but, uh, I was born there and then, um, when I was about four or five, I think my mother and father separated actually because my mother had this incredible conversion experience and literally went from being, uh, I think she probably would have categorized herself as an agnostic um, to uh, a passionate follower of Jesus, literally over wow. night, over one evening. And, uh, so anyways, that sort of reframed her entire worldview, the way she th- thought about her marriage, the way she thought about raising me, you know, her own child. And so she tried to, that, that actually happened when I was about two, and she tried to make it work with my father, her husband at the time. Uh, for for a couple of years, he he had some, um, he wrestled with uh, quite a few demons in his life. So anyways, long story short, my mother got to a point where she just did not feel, one, she didn't feel safe, but two, she didn't feel like uh, the environment her raising me. in the way that um, She felt like the Lord would have her raise me. So long story short, her sister, my aunt lived in California in the Silicon Valley. Um, her husband, my uncle actually worked for IBM. So he was oh, wow. very early on in the seventies and eighties. And uh, they brought us out here. So again, before I can remember, uh, my mom and I flew out and moved in with them for a couple of years. And yeah, I grew up an only child of an immigrant mother who was working two, three jobs at a time, at least, you know, to make ends meet. Yeah. And so uh, I grew up quite a bit. Um, I grew up alone. You know, I was alone a lot. Right. So uh, what that did was I, I, I immersed myself in, in books, and uh, my own thoughts it was lonely but in some ways I'm grateful for that upbringing um, I it, think it's made me really comfortable sort of in the life of the mind and that has its you know benefits and drawbacks
0: yeah I was going to say that probably shaped you in some key ways
1: mm-hmm. yeah absolutely yeah and I, I think it's shaped probably the type of um pastor and church leader that I am as well in both positive and negative ways you know there are some things that I'm so comfortable doing that this um, role requires. And then there are some really, truly pastoral shepherding elements that, uh, I've, I've had to really learn and cultivate over the years because it was just not something I, I did. did
0: really <laughs> right. Which is not uncommon. And you know, all pastors have to work on things. So that's, that's good. We all, we all do to, to become the people we need to be. Uh, very interesting. How did you find faith personally? Sounds like your mom was, was really, she loved the Lord. I imagine she introduced you to her, to him, but what was that like?
1: Yeah, I mean, growing up, I was a church kid, right? So I grew up in, uh, in it was an ethnically Korean church, a Korean American church, but um, that's a whole other story. But there's an interesting divide in ethnic churches where the first generation folks, mm-hmm. you know, have this sort of tribe ethnically in a foreign land where they can be with one another, share the same language. And then their kids, who essentially are the second generation, sort of hybrids, where they have one foot in the in the culture of their parents, but then they're going to school and speaking English and into all the pop culture stuff that American kids are into. And so these little enclaves of second generation, you know, English speaking, very American um, uh, youth groups and such. You know, these these are very typical of, of ethnic churches, and that's that was kind of my upbringing. So um, I, I loved going to church, you know, and I thought what that meant was that I loved the Lord. (laughs) Ah, (laughs) I was like, I was at youth group all the time. You know, I was one of those kids that was at church three times a week. Right. And uh, I loved it. And, and most of my closest friends were not friends at school. They were friends at church. I mean, I had a few close friends at school, but mostly my strongest relationships as a kid were, were church relationships. And, So I just, I, growing up, I thought that that meant I loved Jesus, you know, but then I got to college and the youth group thing all went away. right My my faith fell apart right alongside that. So I I spent a couple of years journeying and searching and uh, similar to my mother uh, in her early years, I think at that time I would have probably categorized myself uh, self-identified as an agnostic. Um, But then in my early twenties, you know, when I was about 21, some guys um, at the church where I grew up, where I was no longer participating, but these guys um, still loved me and cared for me, started inviting me to a Monday night Bible study, and they won me over with the offer of free food and
0: um, video games. <laughs> Always know? good.
1: And then, and then they threw in a little, uh, a little, um, uh, Brendan Manning, The Ragamuffin Gospel. I remember they asked <laughs> me to read that book. They're like, hey, man, we're going to hang out and eat food play video games and watch Monday night football but also we're going to discuss this book so you need to read it. And that journey totally changed my life and we went from Ragamuffin Gospel to several other books and then and then the Bible and um and I slowly began journeying back to Jesus and maybe not even back maybe journeying toward Jesus the risen Christ for the first time you know and These guys really engaged me, not just on an emotional level, but an intellectual one as well. and I'd never experienced that before in my uh, faith. So long story short, that led to me um, eventually a couple of these guys that, that I was in this group with, they were actually interns for the youth ministry at the church. And eventually they invited me to intern alongside them.
0: yeah. So, I want to ask, what was it about Brennan Manning that, uh, that you enjoyed?
1: Yeah, well, at the time, you know, his voice and his life was exactly what I needed. I think what it was, was I had never, I mean, I grew up with a very pristine presentation of the gospel and what it means to be a follower of Jesus. You know, I grew up, and this is not a knock on any of my... Um, youth pastors or small group leaders growing up, they were wonderful and they loved me and loved the Lord and really poured into me. But basically, I was presented a version of the gospel that essentially said to follow Jesus means to not do X, Y, and Z and to do these other things. You know, I can still remember we had this giant poster on our wall in youth group. And it was this list on one side of secular bands that I loved, like <laughs> Nirvana and Pearl Jam, yeah. that I would listen to secretly, you know, when I wasn't at church. And then there was this poster and it was like, if you like Nirvana, you'll love. And then it was like some cheesy Christian rock band that, you know, was trying to sound like Nirvana. I just remember having that. And it's like, that was the dichotomy. That that was what I was yep. presenting. So when I read Brendan Manning with these guys, and it wasn't just Manning's words, it was like the way these guys were inviting me to in the conversation, I was like, oh my gosh, you know, following Jesus is and can be, and often is and sh- in some ways should be this like really messy, um, chaotic, uh, unfiltered journey. you know? Not that it needs to be that or should be that for everybody. But it certainly can be that, and if that's like the raw honesty of your life, then it should be that. Because what Jesus is calling us to is to bring our whole selves to Him, you know, and uh, not present ourselves a particular way, but present who present ourselves, period, and then let Him do that work in us, transform us. So, oh wow, you know, Manny was the first person I'd ever read um, who spoke that way. It really changed my life.
0: Yeah, I love that. Um yeah, I completely agree the temptation is always to have um our spirituality and spiritual maturity defined by our behavior, right? And if that's the case, we're in trouble every single time because it's not it's you you can have good behavior without having Jesus and that should scare us to death. In my opinion, yeah. Okay. So you so you moved uh okay so you were these these guys were helping you. You said then you started to get involved in in a church and yeah, I started interning in youth ministry.
1: I started out as a small group leader for uh 7th and 8th grade boys and I was scared, you know. I was so <laughs> stiff cuz I I knew these guys were going to ask me questions about faith and the Bible and God and Jesus and I was like, I don't have any And what I discovered was they weren't necessarily looking for answers; they were looking for someone to affirm their questions, to listen, and to not tell them, you know, pithy little things like, you know, uh, just believe or whatever. They they just wanted space to talk and uh, and voice their their doubts and anxieties and fears. So that's exactly what I was going through at that point in my life, and something incredibly transformative happened there i mean those boys who were far younger than me at the time you know, 10, 10, 12 years younger than me, they changed my life so i fell in love with that and so i thought you know i was studying business um at the state university here in town at the time and uh, i thought i i worked in banks you know i was like i started as a teller my freshman year of college so <laughs> yeah. i just thought that was going to be the next 50 years of my life I just like, be a-
0: were you excited about that uh no not at all <laughs> Not at all. yeah um but uh,
1: yeah leading this small group of guys i just i really fell in love with it and so i um you know this thing happened where i was like you know what i think i might want to try being like a youth pastor or something so yeah uh so i enrolled in bible college and eventually that led me to uh uh, yeah student ministries role at a, a different church in town so i started doing that when I was like 24. Uh, and then from there at that same church uh, there was we didn't have like a college young adult ministry so i eventually launched a, a college young adult ministry and that eventually turned into another college young adult ministry in town um, the guy who was leading that he and i had become good friends and we eventually uh, launched a church plan together um here in the silicon valley sort of using leveraging um what we had learned through our youth ministry and college ministry years and and trying to launch this community in the silicon valley and then that led me to uh uh role as a teaching pastor at a large multi-site you know church here in town and then um four years ago that i transitioned to uh, the church where i am now so uh, quite the journey yeah 17 years yeah
0: yeah, absolutely. Um, interesting. So how, uh, I'm curious about some of your, your own um, learning and growth. Like, you know, I love how you sort of discovered, um, you know, spirits, like a, a different kind of spirituality and discovered, discovered the Lord. How did that start to work itself out in your life? You know, as you were going through those different ministry positions, you know, ministry can be sort of a meat grinder, right? It can be it can be kind of hard on people. So how, how did you through, through all that, find the Lord, you know, drawing you in?
1: Yeah. Uh, that's a great, um, question. You know, if I had to summarize it, it's like, there could be such a long answer, but I, I guess I would summarize it this way. It's just for me, the last 17 years in ministry, if I'm hearing your question right, in ministry the the journey, um, like you said, it can be a grind and it can be difficult and it can be incredibly confusing. Uh, mm. You know, I would say that the role of the high priest biblically, you know, in the Old Testament, that, that God sort of um, institutes, uh, who then sort of it finds its culmination in Jesus. And then after the resurrection, we have these church leaders who aren't necessarily high priests, but they're acting in some way as a a mediatory means to to guide and shepherd and nurture and lead these communities. Since the very beginning, you know, the only one who's fit to do that role in and of themselves is Christ. Right. Christ is the only one who can and should lead us. And certainly on a theological and even philosophical level, I think we would all say Christ is the one who leads our churches, but he leads our churches um, by using human beings like you and me as instruments of his leadership. And I think that that role being an instrument of leadership in the hands of Jesus is actually really unnatural and, yeah. um, strange. And we are unfit. I mean, every leader I respect says the same thing. I'm unfit to do this. You know, we're Moses at the burning bush all the time. Like, Lord, don't send me Are you crazy. Right. Like, I can't talk. I'm not, you know,
0: man, I wish I would heard that more often when I was in Bible college, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. cause I, that's one of the things that has maybe kept me out of professional ministry but no nobody tells you like oh no that's just how it is <laughs>
1: yeah yeah that's exactly right so yeah I just I share that to affirm what you're saying it is strange and it's a grind and the only thing that's kept me in it for 17 years and, and I you know I guess I would summarize it in two things obviously it's the spirit of God you know that's that that's the main thing but like what is it about the spirit of God's movement in my life that's allowed me to be able to sustain it's just two, two main things. I would just say people and practices, mm-hmm. you know, I have some, some wonderful people in my life and it's not a big circle, but, uh, but, but several, you know, yeah. um, who play different roles in my life, who really keep me grounded and sane. And
0: Yeah. Well, tell, tell me a story about a time when someone did that for you, when somebody either kept you grounded or taught you something or was really instrumental in your walk with the Lord.
1: Yeah. I can tell you so many. I'll tell you a regular, consistent one that I have. I have a uh, about once a month. I Actually, mentioned this in the book very briefly, but about once a month, I get together with four other guys who all serve and lead in the local churches, and we always we get together at the same, usually at the same Thai restaurant, and we <laughs> usually order the same thing. So, so I'm sharing this example because it's both. It's people and practice. It's yeah, them in my life with very specific people. And um, I cannot tell you how often, how many times I've gone to that lunch with heaviness and burden on my shoulders. And in the act of sharing those burdens and speaking to life, the heaviness that I'm feeling, and then to hear them, one, to, to see them not coil, recoil back, but open, open arms sort of embrace my tension or heaviness, burden or whatever and then to lean into me with affirmation like oh man i've felt that too you know i've experienced similar feelings or similar doubts or you know and all of this is happening before anybody is trying to solve anybody else's problems right right doing like well why don't you strategize x y and z and do it this way and you know every now and then that happens but the thing that's been so healing and helpful for me is exactly what i said so there's no recoiling back. They're not you know uh, alarmed or shocked that I struggle or have doubts or whatever. but instead they lean into me and they affirm like Man, oh dude, like I've been there too. like I had an experience with that Let me share what that was like for me and uh, that's been incredibly helpful. and and so uh, as a part of that that's become a practice for us you know, yeah. once a month, we get together and we know we're gonna bring, sort of our raw honesty and just lay it all out there, you know, as we dine together and break bread together.
0: Yeah. I love that. Very cool. Um, How did you discover practices like that?
1: Oh man, that's a, yeah, I think it was just an evolution of things. You know, I I grew up with, I grew up hearing the mantra of quiet time. So as a youth group kid, I was taught, Um, you know I was taught the classic sort of soap method uh, you know (laughs) scripture and you know all all that you guys know Um, uh, so you know I just did that and that that, you know that that sort of evolved over time as I as I read and studied more and obviously seminary was instrumental in sort of uh, gaining a perspective on the historical richness of spiritual practices you know some call them spiritual disciplines and, yep and i you know i quickly realized the quiet time thing is like a 20th century phenomenon <laughs> you know, it, was in a, in a it
0: it's our way of taking all that history and distilling it down into something you can do in 20 minutes right
1: totally totally that's exactly right
0: and it's not bad there's a time for that i think yeah
1: yeah, yeah of course of course yeah but yeah, discovering the richness of, of spiritual practices over the course of Christian history, um, a lot of that happened in seminary.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So, um, but all of that to say, you know, my rhythm of practices is still fairly simple. I don't do the classic quiet time anymore, but uh, it's extended times in in the Word. Um, most mornings, kids wake up and have a cup of coffee and. Uh, you know, it's not rocket science. I just, I try to do, um, I try to read through the Bible as, as much as I can every year. Uh, in most years, it's the entire Bible. Some years it's not. You know? Yeah. Uh, uh, this and, and I try to read the gospels constantly. Like I just try to rip through those four gospels in as large segments of time and chunks of reading as I can over and
0: over Yeah.
1: So yeah, and there are several others.
0: Yeah, um, I love that. Have you ever had a time when the Lord felt far away or you were angry with him? Yeah, absolutely.
1: Um, You know, obviously during those first few years of college when I thought I was an agnostic was confusing time. You know, I don't think I ever let go of um, the God of my youth. I think maybe in some ways I was just confused and certainly in many ways angry that was a time but but also in the last you know 20 years of faithfully following jesus almost 20 years of faithfully following jesus yeah certainly there have been moments and times um, some stuff uh early in in uh, my marriage with jenny where uh, you know some infertility infertility issues and we have two beautiful children now but it took us many years um, to have children, and lots of tests and just visits to the doctor. You know mm-hmm. and that's not and specialists and stuff, and that's not the way anybody ever thinks about the way they're going to start a family. So when that happens, uh, it's man, it was much darker than I expected it to be. So I certainly wrestled quite a bit during that season with anger and frustration toward the Lord. You know, it's really interesting when you go through valleys like that. Um, the emotion uh, trumps your theological understanding. Oh, wow. Theologically, I was like, oh, this is, I've read Job. Like I've read, you know, Lamentations. I've read, uh, you know, like I understand that this is a normative part of human experience and that it doesn't mean God is upset or angry at me. And it doesn't certainly does not mean he's, he's absent or, you know, neglecting me and my needs. That was my theology. But, uh man, it's a fascinating thing when you're in the valley how much um the pain and the hurt and the confusion can just trump your theology. And that certainly happened. <laughs> like I was angry and I was frustrated and, and you know my wife and I both and, you know. so yeah, I mean those are
0: some some moments yeah. that How did that resolve?
1: Well, you know, I wish there was like some epic like <laughs> It's
0: okay if there's not. By the way,
1: yeah, like, oh, yeah, I just came to a deep realization: like, the <laughs> Lord loves me, anyways. Honestly, it wasn't that. Like, we got pregnant.
0: Yeah, and I see that as the Lord's provision.
1: So, in some ways, it's the like, Lord, Lord. we got over it, and um, just in a way that I I am overwhelmed with gratitude for, particularly because I know so many people don't ever see that day. You know? Yeah. People in our church who I know have wrestled with infertility for a long time and still do. So, anyways, that's how it worked out for us. Uh, I wish I was more mature than that. <laughs> I wish it was like even before we had kids. it just, you know, you give and take away, and I prayed the Song of Job. But uh, that's not what happened. We, we got <laughs> pregnant, and I was like, "Whoa, here you go."
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, sometimes it works that way, doesn't it? You know, and I think that's that's totally okay. And I know that our friends here. Uh, have had similar experiences. I I think I'm a big believer. It doesn't have to look like anything in particular. You know, sometimes we, uh, I grew up with the the stories of God in our life having to be very dramatic, right? And we don't really tell them unless they're not dramatic. Um, Except that um, you can read scripture and find, you know, the stuff they they recorded often was dramatic, but not everything, right? Not always. And often it was the people who just quietly trusted the Lord that we looked to, um you know it for, for that kind of kind of thing. So anyway, uh very interesting. All right. So how did you come to write analog church? I, I noticed you're a podcaster and you it looks like you you write a little bit, but how'd you come to write this?
1: Yeah. Uh like I said, you know, I, I've grown up my basically my entire life in the epicenter of digital technology, right in the Silicon Valley. And um so I've always been interested. I've been fascinated, especially in the last you know, 20 years or so, sort of the, the rising acceleration of digital technologies and online technology. And as we enter the digital age and, and the Internet age, um, it's just been so fascinating to me. And then, of course, as a church leader, one who serves and leads in the local church and really primarily just has a deep love and belief in, in the, um, the potential of the local church. Uh, it, yeah, it was just a natural thing, probably especially started, you know, in earnest about um, four or five, maybe six years ago, I really started thinking deeply about the intersection between these two things, the digital age and our ecclesiology, the way we think about what the church is, and, and in particular, how we might be most effective on a missional level to, to reach those who don't know Christ and to form all uh, into And what I began to see is that um, I, I began to really notice about five, six years ago that uh, churches, at least in this area of the world, and sort of nationally as I was looking around, man, I just saw more and more churches sort of rushing headlong into anything and everything that the digital age began to offer in terms of the technology. So you know, some internet company offers some new medium or so, some new technology to connect digitally. And I would just so quickly see churches like, hey, find us on Periscope or whatever, you know, like <laughs> right. all this stuff. It's like, okay, what's happening here? This is kind of strange. And my main concern initially was just driven by like, hey, I, I think no matter what, we need to be more thoughtful, not, you know, yeah, just more thoughtful and careful uh, about, How we leverage technologies. And the more I thought about it, what I realized, and this isn't a thought original to me, brilliant people have written about this. um, The way we leverage technologies and the tech the the ethos of the technology itself, whatever the technology may be, actually has incredibly formative power in who we become. That's undeniable. You know, that we there's no like yeah, we can just use this, but it doesn't influence who we're becoming. No, no, no. If you use a particular thing in a particular way, it is influencing who you're becoming as individuals and as communities. So that's where the book came from.
0: I love that. Marshall McLuhan says the medium is the message, right? And so I think that is something we absolutely as a church need to take seriously, um, which is one reason why I'm a little bit, uh, so what, I'll just let you in a little, one of the reasons I started this podcast the way I did, the the reason we tell stories uh, is because I was annoyed by the fact that uh, podcasting at that point, when I started four years ago, was mostly, at least Christian podcasting, was mostly uh, churches repurposing their sermons, which I was totally thrilled about. Podcasting is the new tape ministry, right? I get it. Um, But uh, the medium is valuable for so much more, right? And so that that's where I was trying to trying to address that. And we've we've been fairly successful doing it. Um, But that's really interesting. So how are you seeing? I mean, obviously, the last month has been quite interesting. Many, many, well, churches, I guess, at least in the United States are going to celebrate Easter. our biggest day digitally. How are you thinking about this?
1: Uh, I guess my best answer is exactly that. I'm just I'm thinking about it. Yeah, <laughs> thinking about it a lot. That's exactly what our church is doing. You know, we'll be streaming on Facebook Live. Yeah, I mean, yeah, the irony is not lost on me that I just released a book, <laughs> you know, uh, in the midst of COVID nineteen about the need to gather in analog, you know, in embodied ways. But here's the deal. Um, one, I my my greatest hope now that I didn't expect for this book. My greatest hope now in the season we find ourselves in is that this book might become um, a sort of voice and give language to our future hope, the thing that we're longing for. You know, the the angst that I think most people are already feeling. You know? I was just reading some articles about digital.
0: Yeah. You
1: know, people are already saying. I mean, think about it. We have every tool at our disposal that we absolutely, that we could ever need, you know, to, to connect with one another. Um, and yet there's something, it's, it falls short. You know, we still are seeing people uh, go outside on their front front lawns and have, you know, happy hour on their neighborhood from, you know, a house away. Just right. so they can feel the, the embodied presence, even at a distance of another human being. Um you know, so in that way, I think eventually this book, hopefully, I see it. I see an affirmation of some of the ideas. But ultimately, in terms of the season we're in now, I, I would agree that the wise and responsible thing to do in the midst of the this novel coronavirus is to, um, you know, bless the world with our absence rather than our presence. Uh, but I think at the same time, in a time like this, especially for those of us who are involved in the local church, we have, to, we have to begin thinking about the way we leverage these digital technologies and uh, think about them as, as creatively as possible so that we can participate in the life of the church even yeah. across our digital divide rather than just seeing digital means as digital mediums, as um, information, presentation, you know, where we're just being
0: right. Yeah. Okay. That's it right there. I love that. Cause every Sunday, I love what our church is doing. Um, but every, every week I'm just one, I have, I have the same two thoughts. The first one is, um, well welcome to the party because I've been doing this for <laughs> three or four years, right? Yeah. Not only zoom, but also, um, you know, just connecting with people and doing lives and, and sharing, um, and, and, to, you know, I, I don't know that a lot of churches, not every church anyway, has been taking social media seriously. But now that it's enough op- that they have to use it in order to reach people, um, they're taking it a lot more seriously. I'm like, well, where were you? You know what? This was here. You know, um, that's a little bit of my own cynicism coming out. Uh, but also uh, the other thought is, hey, rem- figure out what these platforms do for you. Right. It's not just. Um, it's not enough to just stream your service, right? Mm -hmm. Social media is about being social. It's about talking to other people. And so if you're going to just share a sermon uh, recorded or otherwise or live, I mean, that's fine, but that reveals something about what you think uh, people need in order to grow in Christ. And I don't believe anymore that what we need primarily is information. I think what we need is presence. There's a reason that God became a human being, right? He could have told us everything he wanted.
1: That's exactly right. Yeah, incarnation is, uh, by its nature, analog. You know, I argue for that (laughs) in the book. You know, incarnation is uh, the definition of it in the flesh. It means embodied, you know, tactile, physical. And you're exactly right. Um, God could have chosen to write the story of his rescuing uh, and restoring of of humanity and all of creation in whatever way he pleased. And yet he chose to use incarnation, embodied reality. You know, when when the last meal Jesus shares with his disciples before his arrest and crucifixion, and death and resurrection, right, what does he do? He could have left them a song or an idea. If that was us what what would most of us have done we would have like preached a sermon or something yep what does jesus do he says eat this bread drink this cup he shares a meal right which is the most base level embodied reality of human experience yeah
0: e- even his his last lesson to his disciples is very physical he takes off his robe and he washes their feet I've been stuck in John 13 for six months now. I just keep going back to it. Just reading that, watching Jesus. He's got this very human reaction of kind of casting sideways glances at Judas, you know, and, and going back and forth with Peter and washing their feet. But he does this very, very, I don't think it's just symbolically. I think it's, he's doing it very embodied um, in a way that, um, that we don't otherwise, We don't at least I haven't often thought about. So I think it, it is relevant for us. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. agreed. agree. Yeah. Interesting. Wow. Okay. So tell what, what else? Like, I'm, I'm curious what you're seeing and what you would like to see the church do. Cause I, I think about this all the time. Where are we going? Um, you know, as information gets more, we're in the information age, right? As information gets more and more ubiquitous, the way our serv- services are currently structured at least all the ones I've been to, it's all about the information. Mm-hmm. Typically, or that's what gets the most time. Pride of place. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, what are we going to do? What is that where we're where we're headed?
1: Yeah. Well, I hope not. You know, I, uh, I I
0: I do talk about this a bit
1: in the book that you know digital mediums are all well and good and actually really effective in in dispersing, like you said, information, and so. In the book, I'm not arguing for us becoming Luddites. Like I'm not saying throw away technology. You you and I are having this conversation hundreds of miles apart through technology. Um, But what I am arguing for is that the Christian life, the life of following Jesus faithfully, is a life that certainly involves information, but that information is a means to an end. And that the end is transformation, that we are looking not to be informed, to have more knowledge, but to participate in the formational process of being made into the likeness of the image more and more every day in community uh, as the risen Christ, you know, together to become his body together, to be and become his body. And so transformation, I would suggest, happens in analog, always and only in analog. I can watch as many workout videos as I want, but if I don't in an embodied way participate in the exercises, I will I will be utterly informed of how to get fit, but I will never become fit, right? If I um, watch all of the YouTube videos on cooking healthy meals and have every bit of information I need to do that, I will know everything there is to know about eating healthy. But until I actually cook a healthy meal and then Eat that healthy meal, then I'll never actually be healthy. And so, you know, so it is with the life of um, following Jesus, being formed into the image of the risen Christ. We have to. We need more than information. Information is helpful, obviously, and even necessary. But we have to then, in embodied ways, participate in the formation of the process. And so that—that's what I, I suggest in the book. It's what I believe wholeheartedly that uh, the. The the process of being transformed into the likeness of Christ involves tactile embodied participation with others uh, in the life of the church. And so in this season, when we are physically apart um, for the common good, driven by our love for neighbor, what do we do? I think that we have an opportunity, actually, one, to lean into the angst that we feel. Uh, because it's it's an angst that's embedded in our body and in our bones. We're human beings who need uh, human beings you know in embodied incarnational ways uh, to really one feel alive uh, but two to um, experience transformation And so I think we have to live with that awareness, just understand that when this season is over, it can't just be sort of, um, you know, a couple of months of like re-engagement in the physical life of the church as a celebration, and then reverting back to our sort of digital tendencies. Like, okay, now I'll just watch the sermon online. It has to become embedded in us how deeply we need one another in real ways. Um, and then, two, you know, for those who are serving and leading in a local church, I, I do think it's really important that even now we do the we do the hard but creative work of the You know, for us Mm. on Easter, we invited everybody in our church to send us videos, selfies of them uh, saying a particular line that we're going to be make a part of the sermon. I just saw online today a friend of mine who leads a church just north of here. They're doing a virtual choir for their Easter. So their worship leader recorded himself singing a song and then he asked everybody to record themselves singing with him. And send it in. And then they're going to make that like a big sort of virtual choir of all these video clips from people's phones of them singing along. So it's totally digital, obviously, because we need to be, but there are creative ways to invite participation rather than just like, hey, like you said, here's our presentation, watch it for an hour and then turn it off. Right. I think we've got to do that work because then that sort of creative invitation to participate can actually propel us Uh, to a brighter future once we're able to get back together. It's like, oh man, that was awesome. I was really a part of this thing. Let's keep that going.
0: Totally. And I think that that whole thing of participation is so powerful, right? I think that's one of the things. So one of the things I learned from podcasting is um, like my 15th interview was a guy named Richard Jacobson who wrote a book called Unchurching. Right, and that then just set me on this kind of like whole path. One of the things he says is, "Hey, it's not okay for five to ten people uh, to be the only ones who get to use their gifts on a Sunday morning when the church gathers, right? Because that's not what Scripture says, right? Everybody should have something, and I guess short of becoming a Quaker and show, you know, showing up, doing that kind of service, um, you know, I'm trying to figure out how do we do this in how do we participate in serving the body." Um, in ways that we haven't been, not everybody's been invited to do. Um, so I absolutely am hoping that participation is a byproduct of this, uh, this time. I think, I think what it's being revealed, how valuable it is to just see each other's faces. Our church is doing a zoom call after our service. So they do kind of the worship leader does worship and then uh, somebody will do bring a, a, a message from the word. It's been a little shorter too, which I actually think is really good. And then, um, we'll all jump on a zoom call and I get to help, um, lead that call. And, but it's so beautiful to just see everybody's faces that I'm used to seeing and hear their voices and hear what they're going through and to just be connected. Um, and to be thinking of them throughout the, the week. And you know what, the other thing is our, our, uh, our servants are showing up Right. So some of the, some of the ladies who can make masks, for instance, are are doing that for people and dropping them off at people's houses. And, um, you know, you're seeing, you're seeing them serve in ways that honestly our church leaders just can't. Right.
1: Yeah. That's awesome. That's beautiful. That is the picture of the church, right? That's- right. Uh, We, everybody begins to, you know, we talk about this all the time, like church leaders talk about this all the time, like, hey, we're all uniquely gifted and um, you you need to lend those gifts, but especially in moments of crisis like this, you know, if we're not careful because of the technologies we have, we're going to just default to let's throw up some services online that people can watch and then put all of our energy into production value. How do we make it look like the best, you know, or whatever. And I just I think that's the wrong approach. I think it's exactly what you're saying. This is an incredible opportunity for us to call the entire church community to say, in these times of um, uncertainty and anxiety and fear, we all have something to give. And what that eventually turns into is like, oh, you know what, what's actually true, even when it's not times of uncertainty and anxiety and fear at all times, we all have something to give. So the invitation sort of is standing that's our opportunity right now.
0: Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. That's our opportunity going forward. And we need it. We need the church, yeah. the entire church to show up and serve. And imagine what the world would be like if that is the case. Uh is so analog church, you know, is it, is this like only a thing we can do in small groups?
1: Uh no. No, I you know, my hope is that some of these ideas resonate with um, folks who are part of house churches all the way to folks who are part of the you know multi-site mega churches and everything in between. I really do think, you know, in fact, I would say I've seen some is very hopeful thing. I've seen some large churches uh, in the area, at least where I am, who you would think would just lean into because they all do the online thing anyways. You know, and I thought, okay, when we go to this new world of coronavirus, where we're all digital, they're just going to keep doing the online thing. And actually, I've seen several churches that are really large um, begin to lean much more into warmth and intimacy with mm. people in this time. And I'm that's incredibly helpful for me. And and some of the guys who lead these churches are good friends of mine. And so I've asked them about it. And uh, man, I think they're poised for an, inc- an incredible future. Even in their large churches, that when yeah. they get back together, they can continue leaning into the warmth and the intimacy. Um, you know, and I will readily admit, as someone who's written a book about analog, <laughs> there is a way to leverage digital technologies. You know, people can't see this, but you and I are chatting. It's just you and me, and we can see each other's faces as we're as we're talking. Now, this doesn't necessarily fulfill the fully embodied longing that we have to be, you know, with other human beings. However, there's a sort of, if we can leverage it correctly, there's a sort of focus and intentionality in the conversation and we have to do certain things, right? We have to wipe our screen clear of other things that distract us and the pop up, you know, messages and all that, which I've done, but um, there, there are some ways to leverage this that lean us in the direction of closeness that will eventually find its fulfillment in an embodied way, right? So it's if I when I'm traveling for ministry things, uh, I love that I have FaceTime on my phone and I can do this sort of thing right. with my wife and my kids. And it's a wonderful gift of technology. But ultimately what it does is it makes me long to get home to hold them in my the real arms. Right. hugs. so this is a season for church leaders and for just those who are part of the church to lean into that, you know, reality together.
0: Wow. Think creatively. Jay, I think this is awesome. I think it's the perfect conversation to be having right now. Um, I'm excited for the future, um, not only in the ways that we leverage technology, but the ways that we help people um, you know, serve according to their giftings. I think this is a, a wake up call. I love it. So the book is called Analog Church, Why We Need Real People, Places and Things in the Digital Age. I love that written right in the heart of Silicon Valley so that's, that's pretty awesome Jay uh, is there anything you want to leave us with
1: yeah well uh, I guess you know the one thing I would say is um, whoever you are wherever you are uh, peace to you in these incredibly uncertain times truly you know the peace of God and the peace of God uh, upon you maybe experience it maybe more fully than you have you know in a long time or ever just know that, uh, that ultimately we are not in control, and the Lord is, and that is good. That's where I'm finding my hope, and I hope that you find it.
0: Amen. Trust the Lord; it always uh, works out for sure. Thank you, Jay. I appreciate you being here. Yeah,
1: absolutely, Eric. Thanks so much for the conversation.